Dean is going to be preaching on a, a difficult passage, but a really rich passage about how we do relationships with God and with one another in this fallen world. So I'll encourage you to join me in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Listen carefully, for this is God's word to us. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a story about two neighbors who are rivals. It's ACC basketball tournament season, so we'll say one of the neighbors uh, was a uh, Chapel, UNC Chapel Hill fan. The other neighbor was a Duke fan. And uh, one day they got in a conflict over an egg. Uh, the Duke fan had a coop of chickens that laid eggs, and each morning he would go out and he would collect an egg or two and uh, make breakfast with it. It was one of his favorite things to do. So he would go out every day and do that. And uh, one morning he went out, and he happened to uh, go out and not find an egg. So he looked over at the neighbor's yard, the, the Carolina fan neighbor uh, yard, and, and uh, saw that his, one of his hens had actually laid an egg in that yard. And just as he was noticing this, the Carolina fan came out, found the egg, and with joy picked it up and started to take it in. Now the Duke fan said, well, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Uh, you should know that's my hens and that's my egg uh, that, lay, that the hens laid. Carolina fan looked back and said, uh, no, this is my yard. <laughs> and uh, then they went back and forth for a little while between each other, arguing over whose egg it actually was. And so the Duke fan said, okay, I'll tell you what, there's a way we handle conflicts like this in my family. And here's what it's like. Here's what we do. Uh, each of us uh, kicks each other in the shin and the one who gets up the fastest from that wins the argument. So the Carolina fan says, all right, if that's what we're going to do, that's what we're going to do. So what they did is uh, the Duke fan ran in and got his biggest steel-toed boots possible. And then the Carolina fan did the exact same thing, went in and got his boots. And so they came out, and uh, the Carolina fan was going to get his uh, uh, shins kicked first. So the Duke fan just got a running start, came up, and just nailed him in the shins. And, and you can imagine the Carolina fan was just doubling over in pain, howling for 10, 15 minutes. And finally, he slowly got up. And with a grimmest look on his face, he said, okay, it's my turn now. 
And a Duke fan said, that's okay, you can keep the egg. <laughs> Conflict. It shows up everywhere in life with our families, with our neighbors, uh, with coworkers, and sometimes even in church. And in the last year, we can all say that we've looked upon our culture or nation's environment, and we've had more than our share of it uh, culturally with race, with politics, even in COVID controversies. Too often, conflict is dealt with in a very worldly manner, uh, with win-lose ways, like I just illustrated with the Duke and Carolina fan. Too often, Conflict creates broken relationships that leave many of us either laying on the ground, grimacing and holding our shins, or standing smugly as the one who did the kicking. But here's the thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to something very different in handling conflict, particularly in Matthew 18 today, and that different way of Jesus is the way of love in peacemaking, in peacemaking. Now, I want to be crystal clear to everyone here and those watching online, I am not preaching this sermon because there's some conflict brewing within our church. We're enjoying a season of peace on the whole as a church. Nor am I preaching this uh, to even come close to implying that Christians don't get into conflicts. I mean, the book of Exodus that we just finished together as a church uh, is full of all kinds of conflicts among and with the Israelites. I also don't want to give the impression today that I have mastered conflict. I am a fellow learner who has been being tutored by Jesus out of my unhealthy ways of handling conflict that I learned from my family of origin. We're talking about this today, and we'll continue to talk about it in years to come as a church because we need the gospel and need Christ's teaching on how to do relationships and love even when we're in conflict. We all have to admit that we struggle with this issue whenever conflict comes our way. So that brings us to the question of the day. How do we find hope intense relationships as followers of Jesus Christ? What can we do to be at peace as far as it depends on us, as Romans 12 says? Well, we're going to think about this uh, right out of Matthew 18, out of Jesus' own words with four Ps. And uh, the four Ps are the point, the preparation, the process, and the pattern of peacemaking right out of Jesus' words in the gospel. So I bring this up and we enter into Matthew 18 because Jesus himself had conflict on his mind when he mentioned this in Matthew 18. In the prior chapters throughout the book and even, he had faced conflict with the Pharisees who were his, uh, his ideological, uh, even political enemies. They challenged him all the time. He dealt with power play conflicts among his own disciples who would go at it with each other, or who is the greatest in the kingdom. And then, of course, he had to deal with conflict with at least a few of his uh, disciples himself. You think of the apostle Peter in Matthew 16, just a few chapters earlier, where Peter challenges Jesus around his own sense of mission to the cross. And Jesus ends up rebuking him 
in a very direct way. Jesus was no stranger to conflict in this life, even to death on a cross. But here's the amazing thing about that. In the book of Matthew, in Matthew 5, he opens up with this idea of broken relationships by saying this in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Jesus, the very Son of God, saw a larger aim for all of us when it comes to conflict, and that aim is peace. The Old Testament or Hebrew would be shalom, a sense of rightness, a sense of health in all things, in relationships, particularly with God at the center of that help. Now, this is, Jesus is focusing on peace because that's what Jesus himself came for in our world to make peace. In, fundam in the fundamental relationship of all things, and that's between us and God himself, at the cross, Jesus bridged the hostilities that existed between a holy God and us, unholy sinners, and God, and this is the cool thing, initiated that bridging. God made the first move in the conflict by his grace. Do not miss that, that in the gospel throughout, from Genesis to Revelation, it's telling us that God initiates reconciliation and peace uh, first with us. And I mean, Paul says it in Romans 5. He says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Reconciliation is a result of peacemaking in Christ. So we could say that peacemaking is the way of Jesus that reconciles, even restores broken relationships through the truth and grace of Jesus Christ and through his sacrifice. In short, peacemaking is following Jesus into restored relationship. That's what it is. Following him into restored relationship. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 15 in our text where it says this. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, notice how Jesus is commanding his followers to do this very thing. He's taking charge. He's being the king, calling us to a different way of life and following him. And what is the end of this peacemaking call that he makes, starts out with in verse 15? Well, the end of peacemaking is gaining your brother. Gaining your brother in reconciliation and restoration. Now, sometimes people would say peacemaking is about repentance. No doubt repentance is a key part of the peacemaking for all involved in the process. But the end game is reconciliation and restoration, where a breached relationship is restored through the work of Christ. And here's why. Because both of the people who are in conflict, the offended party and the offender, need Jesus to rescue the relationship. They need him to rescue the relationship. Now, Jesus talks about how this happens by talking about listening. Now, listening is where someone takes to heart what Christ says and, uh, and, 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 and understands how sin breaks relationship and then acts 
in a different way through repentance. So listening is effectively repentance. But I do want to highlight something here. Did you notice how I highlighted how much the two parties involved in the conflict need Jesus to rescue the relationship? I can say that because Jesus is the king. He's directing us to live this way as followers of his. Uh, but that's, it's really because he wants to be the Lord and Savior of the relationship. He wants to be the Lord and Savior of the relationship. And what this means is we have to learn when we enter into any kind of conflict how to rely on Jesus and not ourselves or our impulses. All of us have impulses on how to handle relationships. And here Jesus is saying, don't rely on your impulse. Look at me and listen to me in my way in how to handle this. So here's what I want to ask you guys to do. Over the next moments as we talk about conflict, I want you, for the rest of the sermon, to think of someone you feel at odds with, someone where the relationship is tense because they sinned against you or you sinned against them. Who is that? Who is that? You got it? Think of them while we talk about this. And here's what I want you to do is get a vision from Jesus of gaining your brother or your sister in reconciliation. The implicit call of this text is that we follow Jesus and his ways to restoration. And Jesus himself gets involved as the peacemaker in our hearts and the other person's heart so that he might repair the broken things. Now, as soon as I propose this, this all sounds good, but you got to ask at some point, why is it we have a hard time with conflict resolution? Why is it so hard to even think about it or talk about it? And I'll tell you why. Because we lose hope. We think it all depends on us. We think it all depends on the other person. We all think it just depends on the situation or circumstances changing. We forget to include Jesus in that conflict, that he's the one who can rescue us. And here, we lack this vision. We lack the vision that one day, especially if they're a follower of Jesus that we're in conflict with, you're going to end up in heaven with them in a completely restored relationship with no more war. This is important to think about. You need a vision of Jesus rescuing you and putting you together with those you're in conflict with. That he will do that by changing you and by changing them. That's the vision you have to get in understanding reconciliation. With that vision in mind then, how should we handle ourselves in conflict? How should you prepare yourself? Now, most of us here, especially us American types, are like, okay, all right, let's get her done. Let's just dive in and go for it, right? And I, I understand that. I mean, I'm an American male, educated. I'm like, let's, I want, I'm a leader type. Let's go do it. I'm saying, stop. Don't do that. Once you really come to grips with, I need to work on this relationship and go reach out to this person and deal with it, 
do not rush too quickly into the process. Before you enter peacemaking with Christ leading you into it, you have to pause and do some work on yourself first. Where are you with Jesus in this conflict? Where are you struggling? I would suggest to you, Scripture tells us three basic things, right out of Matthew even, for that matter, that we can learn about how we prepare ourselves to deal with peacemaking. How we let, as we sang earlier, Jesus consume us and tame our hearts, which get really anxious when we deal with this. First thing is this, you deal with the log in your own eye. Matthew 7, Jesus tells us something about how we critique other people's sin. He says, get the log out of your own eye before you go and take the speck out of your brother's eye. I mean, you got to remember one key thing here. While someone may have sinned against us in a very real way, in a very hurtful way, we have to reckon with our own sinful ways, even our own sinful responses to that. We may not be responsible for the breaking of the relationship, but how we respond is also a key piece in the matter. Pull the log out of your eye first. Second, from 2 Corinthians 13, we're called to examine ourselves. Now, a good self-examination exercise is to consider how you normally handle conflict. Now, our friend Ken Sandy helps us here. He's written a great book called The Peacemaker. And in that book, he comes up with two helpful categories that we all tend to lean towards in some way. One category is the peace faker. The peace faker. The peace faker will say, la, 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 I don't want to think about the problem, la, la. Uh, what issue? What conflict? I'm not hurt. They're not bothering me. It's not really there. Because none of us here have ever struggled with that, right? Well, the peace faker will usually disengage from conflict by going silent with the person they've been hurt by. The peace faker will usually even act passive-aggressively to those people with whom they are angry with. But that brings us to the, the next one, the peace breaker. That's Ken Sandy's other category, the peace breaker. Now, the peace breaker is a little bit like Tony Montana in Scarface. You remember Tony Montana in Scarface? You know, okay, you want a piece of me? The peace breaker will lead with anger and sometimes with divisiveness. That's what the peace breaker will do. Everyone here does one or really both of these to some degree, but it's important to know where you go normally. And just so you know, I tend to be definitely a peace faker, like, hey, we're all friends. We're not, ha we're not mad with each other when, in fact, things are going on. And then if you push me long enough, I'll go to street fighter. I mean, I got old Irish in me back there, you know, and so I go to street fighter pretty fast. Here's another way to say this. By knowing yourself, pay attention to your emotions before, while you're dealing with this whole thing. Are you angry? And more often than not, knowing that anger is a secondary emotion, are you scared? Do you want to win more than reconcile? And here's a big one I've learned for myself and working with leaders through the years is this. Are you afraid of being shamed? I can tell you as one who's handled some conflict well and some not so well, 
And as one who's walked with many leaders, even pastors, uh, through mediation, the fear of shame is a gripping one sometimes. But here's the thing. You've got to go do business with Jesus in this. When the fear's rising up, when the shame's rising up, when all that's going on, all the emotions are rising up, you got to go to Jesus and rest in his covering and his grace and his acceptance and his smile upon you. That's the step we often miss, is we don't, do good, don't just pay attention to ourselves, we miss doing business with Jesus in the process. There's one third thing that we want to do to, to kind of examine ourselves, just to be real brief, is we pause and prepare ourselves by considering the nature of the offense. And normally I wouldn't talk about this, but we live in such an age where people take offense like that at anything. And you have to ask what Scripture says, or really a, a deal what Scripture says in Proverbs 19.11, where it says, it's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. In other words, you ask, is this really worth fighting over? Can I forgive and let this pass? We need to be slow to anger and quick to forgive like Christ. Now, if you can't let it go, in way you've been hurt, well, that should tell you something. You need to go to the next step if you can't let it go. But the key is be careful about the offense that you're taking an offense at. Is it actually something that can be defined as sin in Scripture in some meaningful way rather than debatable manners such as cultural practices or spiritual gifting or leadership styles or personality styles? I'll never forget, I go to Africa years ago with my last church, and we get together with groups of people, and we'd be led by African leaders, men. And you know how African men talk to each other? This is how they talk to each other in regular conversation. They get up in each other's faces and point the finger at each other really loud, speaking loudly to each other like this. Now, all of you, as us white kind of American, Anglo types, among others, even just American culture in general, that goes like, whoa. My first response was, they're going to get in a fight. But in fact, they weren't getting in a fight. That's how they talk to each other. That's how they talk. So you have to be aware of what's real as, a, as an actual sin versus mere perception Go to Christ and His Word to get clear on what an offense is. So, we prepare ourselves with Jesus first by dealing with conflict in ourselves. But Jesus then lays out in our chapter a clear um, process for reconciliation in Matthew 18. And He says four things. He says, you go, take a witness. Then He says, take it to the church and treat them as a tax collector. Four things. Now, as I talk about entering into this process, I have to highlight something. The process for reconciliation isn't easy. It isn't natural for us to do this. It's not something we inherently do. It is a narrow road that Jesus calls us to walk. But if you follow the ways of Jesus in this, Here's what will happen to you. You'll feel really strange. It'll feel odd. 
it'll feel like an ill-fitting suit in some ways to do this. It just is not, it just feels strange. In fact, when you do this, and especially if you're a people-pleaser type, you will feel like you're dying. You will. But I would remind you that this is what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. In other words, conflict resolution, according to Jesus, is a sacrifice. And it is a test of real discipleship if you're going to get up on the cross and follow him. Learn to love and learn to love even real or perceived enemies by dying to yourself. So let's say you find yourself in a conflict with someone, even a believer, especially if they've sinned against you, what do you do? Well, after you've done work with Jesus on yourself, Jesus says this. You ready? He says, now you just sit back and wait for them to be and get their act together and come to you and apologize. Nah, that's not what he said, right? He says this profound thing. You go. If you've been offended, you go. You're like, what? What are you talking about? I'm a southern man. We keep our dignity. We don't bring up the conflict, even though we're seething inside. You go. That's what Jesus says. If someone hurts us, Jesus calls us to go one-on-one -on -one with the goal of reconciliation and restoration. He is super clear about that. One-on-one, -on -one, go to him if you've been hurt by someone. You know what else is interesting about this you-go exhortation? In Matthew 5, just some chapters earlier, Jesus also brings up going to worship with a gift to God, and then you realize that someone has an offense with you, that you've sinned against them. And you know what he says? Stop your worship, leave your gift, and reconcile with them. Do not miss this. In both cases, if you've been sinned against or you are the sinner, you go. Initiate. Step out in faith following Jesus. And the reason we do that is because that's exactly what Jesus did with us. He didn't sit back in heaven and say, well, now I'm going to wait for them to get their act together, and then they can work their way towards me in the process and do what they need to do to make me happy. No. He came to us. Even in our blindness, he came to us. You know what? If we do this in our church with people in our lives on the whole, even unbelievers, 90% of conflicts will end right there. I tell you, one of the chief ways we could do evangelism as believers is actually go to your unbelieving friends who you just did something wrong with and say, hey, man, I blew it. I, I'm sorry, I, did not, I didn't treat you well. Can we talk about that? You want to know how unbelievers will go, what? What are you doing? <laughs> what is this? Folks, keep short accounts. Initiate with each other. You go first. 
Now, Jesus goes on in steps three and four to talk about how you take it to the church and treat someone as a tax collector. He changes his language in the Greek here. I noticed that reading through it, uh, of listening uh, when it gets to the level of church and tax collector, and that's because people can get hard and not listen. So the church elders, who are usually when you take it to the church, what that means, get involved because they have the keys of the kingdom and loose and bind people, what our text, our uh, future text says. When problems get to the level of the church or uh, to, um, to even uh, excommunication, which is the proper thing, it must be substantive and consequential. We're talking about radical sins here. You ready? I'm talking about sins such as affairs and, and gossip. In very rare cases, after months and months and many steps, some people can be excommunicated. The elders, along with the body of the church, declare that the behavior has been so bad, so unrepentant, that they give a temporal judgment that these people are not acting like Christians over a long period of time. Now, the best illustration I can give of this kind of, these last steps that I highlight here is that you stand in people's way sometimes. If someone's walking towards the edge of a cliff, what does love look like? You actually stand in their way and say, stop, you're walking to the edge of a cliff. That's what you say. You stand in their way because they're in danger. But here's the thing. What if somebody keeps wanting to walk to the edge of the cliff over and over and over again, and after five, ten, many times of warning them, they just keep doing it? Many of us here would say, well, this one, you, you put a rope on them and you hold them. And I'd say, no, nah, that's not what you do. You actually get out of their way and you let them walk off the cliff. And here's why our struggle, and here's where our struggle with conflict resolution is revealed. We don't often believe that Jesus will be at the bottom of the cliff. And we follow him to love people at the bottom of the cliff. That's what makes the church different. You see, in our culture today, when there's conflict, there's a lot of shunning that goes on. Boy, look at social media and cancel culture. It's horrendous. It's shunning off the charts. So I don't take any critiques about excommunication being mean as too serious considering what happens in our world already. What I would say is what's different about the church is we don't shun. We treat them as a tax collector. You know what that means? We love them just like Jesus did. We share the gospel with them. We spend time with them. <laughs> Come to Jesus. That's what makes us different rather than cutting them off for good. Given all that I've just told you, there is one section that I don't want to forget. It's the second step that says if someone doesn't listen, then you take one or two along that a charge may be established. I want to highlight this because this is where other Christians get involved and can really be a great source of redemption or a terrible source of division and trouble in a conflict. 
This is where communication is necessary and crucial. And here it is. If you get stuck in the relationship with someone who sinned against you, here's what you do. You can ask for help. You can ask for counsel. More specifically, you can ask for mediation. Mediators don't necessarily tell you what to do. They help you as witnesses talk with each other. Because that's usually the problem is when we're together and, we're bro- and there's broken relationship, you can't hear each other. You can't talk with each other. You need somebody to help you. I've been through this in my life where somebody said, hey, Dean, didn't you notice that when so-and-so said this, that you didn't pick that up? Wasn't that a big deal? And I was like, uh, no, I didn't pick that up. Should I? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, thanks for saying that. That's what a good mediator will do. Here's why that matters. The witnesses have to be committed to reconciliation and restoration of the parties in conflict. They must be for both parties not taking sides. And here's where churches go wrong. Division forms when people demand that others take sides in a personal, even private conflict. If you're offended, do not go looking for people who will take your side so you can feel like you've got protection of people. You look for people to take your side and the other person's side. Now, how do I get that? Is that me just coming up with some clever way as a preacher? Well, look at our verses. In verse 19, it says this. These are famous verses that we quote each other all the time. And look what it says. It says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. If you've been following Jesus a long time, you've probably quoted that a million times, haven't you? Where two or three are gathered. Context is king. He's talking about conflict. Conflict. Two or three are gathered in his name for the reconciliation of the parties involved. You want to know what's powerful? Is when the prayers of the people rise up, when there's a conflict between two people, two leaders, two whoever, or even groups of people, and the prayers of the people rise up, Jesus, save us. Jesus, rescue them. Jesus, change them. You know why I know that? Because that's exactly what the Trinity did for us. The Trinity conspired not to crush us as sinners in a win-lose situation, but to work out the plan of salvation so that Christ, our mediator, would bring us reconciliation with God the Father and through the Spirit. You ready for a wild thought? I hated this thought when I read it with Ken Sandy, but I had to agree. God loves us so much that he allows us to be in conflicts in life as a providential opportunity to need him, to rest in him, and to hope in him for the salvation of the relationship. That's what it is. Oh, Satan would use it to divide and to create divisions in family and churches and in a culture maybe. (laughs) But Jesus uses it as an opportunity for us to cry out, save us. Save us again, Lord. Jesus, in other words, is calling us to a pattern uh, 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 to offer ourselves like him 
in the process of peacemaking. Whether we're the offender or the offended, we're to following, follow his pattern, even in the cheering of others on to reconciling conflict. So if conflict rises up in this church, here's what you need to do. You need to start praying. Lord, bring re- reconciliation. Bring, the, bring your grace into this. Lead your people. These two friends that we have, the leaders who are getting in conflict, leaders are notorious for getting in conflict. Pray, Lord, that they would do that. God has done some amazing things that I have seen through conflict resolution and repaired marriages where affairs were involved. God has also sometimes not done things. I don't want you to pretend, I don't want to walk away here today thinking that there's a magic formula here of reconciling relationships. God blesses as he wants to. But I'll tell you this. I've experienced this myself. And I'll tell you about how I experienced it when I tell you about how I preached my father's funeral. My dad died eight years ago. And many of you know that I grew up in a non-Christian family. And I'm just going to say it plainly. We were terrible at handling conflict. Divorce was all over the place. Some of my family were literal street fighters, including my own blue-collar father. Indeed, my dad was not an easy person to live with. He hurt us through his alcoholism. He hurt us through his abandonment. I am pleased to say that my dad became a Christian about the same time I did, and it changed him. Jesus rescued him so much that when I got up at his funeral eight years ago, I told a whole congregation of people, like 400 people, I said, look, I want to tell you the difference between my father 30 years ago and my father right before he died. It was a radical difference that only came by the grace of God. And then I told them this story. Two months before my father died, he came to me and to my two siblings individually. And he came to us, and I'll never forget when he came to me. He said, son, I'd love to talk to you. And so I said, all right, Dad, let's get, let's get together. So we went out on the back patio, and we sat on the chair. He said, son, uh, I want to um, ask your forgiveness for the way that I raised you and didn't raise you. And uh, I would just ask you to forgive me for what I didn't do and what I did do to you. And I'll never forget as he was doing this with me, I couldn't help but smile. It was like I was watching redemption happen. The very thing I'd longed for most of my life happening right in front of me. And he and I had talked about our relationship and the hardship through the years on and off, but this was the first time he just really came right out and said it. And you know what I told him? I said, Dad, I'll happily forgive you because Jesus has rescued me from my sin. (laughs) I'm, I'm happy to forgive you. Dad died two months later. But I could do his funeral with a smile that day on another level, because as brothers, we'd been brothers for years in Christ, and he was my father in, uh, uh, in many ways, but it was a beautiful thing to be healed in that relationship. Now, remember that relationship I told you to think about earlier? Do you believe Jesus can heal that relationship?
Look to him to reconcile and restore you. There's a Christ big enough to change you and to change that relationship. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time that we've been talking about a difficult subject. Now as we go into the Lord's Supper, we ask you, Lord, uh, to meet us. Because there's a lot of us who are feeling tender right now, considering challenging relationships in our lives and how to handle those conflicts that we've lived with maybe even for decades. We pray today that you would hear our prayers and our longings for healing in that relationship that you put on our hearts and minds. And that you would change us, you would change them. You do it for your glory and you prove once again that you're the Savior. The Savior that we talk about so fondly. The Savior we want to hope in yet again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.